I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGN News, How on Earth, for Tuesday, May 31st, 2011. It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, how demand for water from the Colorado River could outstrip supply and what we should do about the crunch. When is a promise not really a promise? When you rely upon the Colorado River for your future water supply. And author Marcus Michael Schirmer discusses how humans form beliefs and reinforce them. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Math gets little respect, at least among middle school and high school students, and apparently among sources of funding as well. A new paper suggests that cognitive disorder that impairs a person's ability to learn math skills called dyscalculia affects the same number of people as dyslexia. But the math disorder hardly shares the same high public awareness or research funding. In the paper, which was published in the journal Science, Neuropsychologists and other researchers from Australia, the United States, and the U.K. say that genetic and developmental factors are believed to contribute to dyscalculia. According to the research, people with dyscalculia do not intuitively grasp the size of a number and its value relative to other numbers, and that deficiency persists into their adulthood. But some educational interventions have been found to help. One promising example is adaptive software that has been developed for dyscalculic learners. The researchers suggest that this software could reduce the demand for expensive, specially trained teachers in the future. One usually doesn't cast a hopeful eye to the tropics during hurricane season, but that's precisely what the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration scientists did at a briefing last week on the continuing drought afflicting much of the southern states. Texas and New Mexico have been hit particularly hard, with upwards of 90% of all counties in severe to exceptional drought. January through April was the third driest such period in New Mexico's history. And in the Lone Star State, 34 fires scorched nearly 62,000 acres in just the seven-day period ending May 27th, a follow-on from a blaze in April that destroyed more than 400 homes and killed two firefighters. Drought could begin to ease in New Mexico by mid-June, when the annual summer monsoon typically begins. And Texas could get relief during this summer's hurricane season, which starts June 1st, according to NOAA scientist Victor Murphy. He's not hoping for devastating hurricanes, just weak tropical storms that drop a lot of rain but do no damage. Experts attribute the drought to a particular strong La Nina, one half of what scientists call the El Nino Southern Oscillation, or ENSO. This seesawing climate pattern in the Pacific Ocean Basin affects weather worldwide. While ENSO is a natural source of climate variability, studies hint that the man-made climate change may alter its behavior. La Nina conditions have subsided now, but scientists say its impacts will take some time to go away. Thanks to How on Earth's Tom Yulesman for that report. For more information on the topic, go to www.climatecentral.org and click on the Drought Relief Story. And the city of Boulder will host a community forum called 
Know Your Power this Thursday. It's part of the city's effort to reach out to residents about energy choices for the city's future. The event will run from 6 to 8.30 p.m. at the East Boulder Community Center at 5660 Sioux Drive. Speakers include Tom Plant, the former director of the governor's energy office, and Kurt Hager, a managing director at Excel Energy. Given all the rain we've had lately along the Front Range, it'd be easy to think that we're coming out of a drought cycle and don't have much to worry about for water supply for Colorado in the future, but that's hardly the case. Even if drought conditions improve, the compounding forces of climate change and population growth could wreak havoc, especially on Colorado and other upper basin states of the Colorado River. The river is shared by seven western states, plus Mexico. That's been the case since the Colorado River Compact was put in place in 1922, a year of unusually high flows. Next week, the University of Colorado's Natural Resource Law Center will host a conference called Navigating the Future of the Colorado River Basin. To shed some light on the hot-button issue that is the Colorado River and what's at stake for Coloradans and others in the West, we have in the studio Dr. Doug Kenny. He's director of the Western Water Policy Program at the Natural Resources Law Center at CU Boulder's Law School. Dr. Kenny, welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's start with, you know, we've had quite a bit of water, a lot of precipitation here, at least on the front range in the Rocky, and record snowpack in the Rockies for the last year. So is this bringing us out of a drought cycle and thus back to normal conditions? And what's the problem? Well, you never, you never really know if you're out of a drought cycle until a couple of years down the line. Um, but I'm kind of the opinion it doesn't matter really that much whether this is an end of a drought or not. The, 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 what concerns me on the Colorado River is really the, the longer-term trends. Sure, there will be some droughts and sure there will be some wet periods, but the trend for the long term is what is of concern to me, and the trend is for declining water supplies overall. And what's behind the trend? What's evidence for that sort of doom scenario? Well, I mean, you know, water... How, how much water is available to you is really a function of two things. One, how, how much demand there is, you know, how much water other people are using, and two, how much Mother Nature provides naturally. And both of those trends are going in the wrong direction. Um, Meaning we're using a heck of a lot we're more using a, as a population well, growth? Well, I think the most telling thing is the Colorado River has not reached the ocean in decades. I mean, every drop of water is consumed on the Colorado River. And many states, uh, especially Colorado, has, has ambitions to use quite a bit more water from the Colorado. So you have that side of the equation that is of concern. The other side of the equation is the, the supply side. And this is one of the areas where the, the climate scientists seem to be in, in quite a bit of agreement that, that the future flows of the Colorado will be less than they are today. And one thing you said that looks particularly alarming for the upper basin states, Colorado included, is based on this 1922 compact, the wording of it, 
should water run dry, I mean, we all could be screwed in the end, but especially sure. the upper basin states because the lower basin actually had the legal right to take. Could you describe that? And I is mean, it really the, that bad? The, the, the law that describes how much water each of the states and Mexico gets is called the law of the river. And it's exceedingly complicated. And I won't get into the details. But and this the, is the compact going but, back to But the centerpiece of the law of the river is the compact from 1922. I mean, there's been a lot of things layered on top of it over the years. But but in a nutshell, what happens in the law of the river is that, is that in theory, the, the upstream states, including Colorado, and the downstream states were supposed to split the flow of this river equally. Um, that's the theory. Um, in practice, it doesn't work that way because they overestimated the flow of the river when they divided it up. And, and, and the way the system works is that the lower basin gets their share first, and then the upper basin is supposed to take their water supply from what's left. And could you just say briefly which states are the upper and lower basins? The upper is, is Colorado, Wyoming, uh, Utah, and New Mexico, um, the lower basin states, Arizona, Nevada, and California. And and, and just as the the way the, the rule the way that the compact is written and the other elements of the law of the river is written, that those states downstream, California, Arizona, and Nevada, have a much more secure water supply than those states upstream. And is this more telling of politics than hydrology or anything else, that the, that the lower well, basin got more? I mean, the, the origins of, of this arrangement are, are, I mean, it's fair to say that it was simply a mistake. Um, you mentioned that um, the compact was negotiated in the early 1920s, and that was a wet period. It, it's actually been about a 20-year wet period. And so when they sat down to negotiate this agreement, they really thought this was a fairly uh, wet river basin and the flows would be pretty high. And it was just an honest mistake, but that that happened to be a very um, unusual period. Um, but once that was realized that mistake existed, you know, in theory to, to remedy that problem, you would you would renegotiate or you would you'd work a deal to to share that mistake equally among the basins. And, and that's really where the politics come into play. Um, it's often pointed out that, that California, just by itself, has more congressional representatives than the other six states combined. I mean, it, the, the political and economic muscle in this basin is in the lower half of the basin. So Mark Twain perhaps was pretty prescient when he said way back when, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. Yes. Is that going to come true? Well, you, there is a lot of fighting. I guess it depends. You know, you have to know what to look for. And, and the fighting to this point has is, is taken the the form of posturing and, and some um, slightly veiled threats of, of litigation and, and that sort of thing. Um, I think everyone on the basin is fearful of, of, of what happens if you try to solve these problems through litigation. Um, there's been one big interstate uh, lawsuit on the Colorado in, in, the, in the basin's history, and, and this took decades to resolve, millions of dollars to resolve, and the decision that finally came out of the Supreme Court wasn't particularly helpful. It raised as many issues as it, as it addressed. And so people are hesitant to, to go that route, go the litigation route. Um, but if you, the other route is a negotiation route. And again, you have this problem of this great political imbalance between the upper basin and the lower basin. So we're sitting here in the upper basin, mm-hmm. you know, where the headwaters are. It yep. seems intuitive and maybe righteous to say we should get more. But you... Yeah. Um, Working with lawyers, working with water managers, what do you prescribe, if not one particular approach? But obviously it sounds like you're not hoping for the Supreme Court. Well, yeah, I certainly I th- certainly think the, the solution, or let's 
let's back it up. The way you get to a solution is through a, a cooperative negotiation process. I don't think you really want to try to solve this through the courts. Um, the question is, what, what can you negotiate? Um, you know, the, the compact and the other elements of the law of the river essentially made promises to each of the seven states in Mexico about how much water they can expect, expect to receive. Um, those prom, you know, you add up the math, you add up what everyone's promised, and, and, and it just doesn't add up. There's just not that much water. Um, so you have this real political problem is that if, if, if you're an elected official in one of these states, you really can't enter into a negotiation where you're going to agree to accept less water than you were previously promised. Right. Um, politically, you just can't do that in the West. The way you build political careers in the West is you go get more water, not negotiate to accept less. And could you... Back up a bit and just describe briefly what, what the climate models are showing. Because you said before, well, even if we're coming out of this drought cycle, that's not going to really help us long term. You know, the climate models, and there are about two dozen of these global circulation models, these giant computer programs that run on supercomputers. And, and they're all a little different, these models, so they all produce a little different output. But one of the things that's really striking is there's only a handful of places in the world where these models all have consistent predictions. And the and southwestern U.S. happens to be one of those areas. And distill what they look like, and, what and, they're showing? And, and, and they all show significant warming, um, which translates to less, less runoff. Um, some actually show more rain, some show less rain, but just because of the warming and what that means for evaporation and for plant growth and that sort of thing, they all say less flow. And how much less is the is the key. Over the next 50 years, maybe a 10 to 30% decline in flow. So not the sky is falling scenario, but so as we wrap up, could you describe what the conference is going to be next week, June 8th to 10th at at CU and how that will help address all this? I mean, there's been a lot of conferences on the Colorado over the last five or six years talking about the problem and and, and, and the sky is falling scenario, if you will. And, and we're trying to take a step beyond that and talk about what are some of the solutions. Um, historically, people, when they talk about solutions, they're always talking about these grand engineering solutions of pipelines to the Great Lakes or something like that. And we really want to talk about more practical solutions um, that deal with uh, negotiations and compromises and maybe ways to use less water and that sort of thing. For so, everyone, not for just everyone. agriculture, residential, the whole shebang. I think that's I think that's the way that we have to go. Yes, and so the conference next week, um, pretty much everyone, it's, it's the who's who of Colorado River politics next week. Everyone who's everyone who's involved in this issue will be in Boulder. Um, we have a series of meetings, a major conference Wednesday to Friday of next week. But and this is open to the public. Um, the conference is open to the public. You know, it's uh, you have to register and pay your fee and that sort of thing. And I think we actually were. We've, we're already overbooked. Um, but the public should be aware that on Wednesday, there's several events that are open to the public, um, a meeting of the Upper Basin Commission, so you can hear a little bit about the Upper Basin perspective. There'll be a series of presentations about the, all the federal studies that are underway in the basin. And then Friday um, after, Friday evening at, at 5.45 p.m., we'll have Pat Mulroy, who's the director of the Southern Nevada Water Authority. She'll give a talk. And Pat is by far the most... Um, dynamic personality on, on the river. And, and she represents Las Vegas, who is more than any other city in this basin is, is worried about the Colorado River. Right. Well, thank you. And if anyone um, wants to see if they can attend or just learn more about the conference, you could just Google CU 
water sure. conference, and it'll come up first thing. So thank you so much for coming to the sure. show. Thank you. That was Dr. Dog, Doug Kenny, director of the Western Water Policy Program at the Natural Resources Law Center at CU Boulder's Law School. We'll also post a link to the conference as well, as well as uh, some of Dr. Kenny's papers later today on our website, howonearthradio.org. This is Joel Parker. You're listening to How on Earth. Why do you believe what you believe? Is it because you collected data, weighed the evidence, and made a logical decision? Or did you rely on emotions and intuition to guide you to an answer that felt right? Science teaches us to rely on the first method to understand the world through observation and reason, but anyone who's ever fallen in love or raised a child knows there are times when emotions provide the best data. Is one of these a better way to understand the world and make choices? Are they, in fact, separate processes? Or does the brain have its own surprising way of combining feelings, perceptions, logic, and instincts to make sense of the universe? For answers of these questions about why and how we form beliefs, we go now to How on Earth's correspondent, Ted Burnham, in our Denver studio. Ted? Thanks, Joel. I am here with renowned skeptic and science writer Michael Shermer. His new book, The Believing Brain, brings together evidence from neurology, psychology, and the social sciences to explain why humans believe in, well, anything at all, from science to the supernatural. Michael Shermer, welcome to How on Earth. Good morning. So you've spent much of your career examining why people believe weird things. Uh, you even wrote a book by that title previously. But in this new book, The Believing Brain, you're trying to explain all of our beliefs, even the most mundane beliefs we form. So what prompted you to go that extra step? Right. Well, I wanted to expand out from why people believe weird things to why people believe things, period, full stop, just everything. So I start with the <clears throat> the the basic neuroscience of how we learn connecting the dots a to b and b to c and 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 that's just basic pattern seeking behavior that our brains do uh and it turns out what we what we normally do is just always find patterns if you set subjects down in front of a computer screen and flash in front of them random dot patterns or sequences of tones they don't find randomness even though they're really random they always find some kind of pattern so our brains are wired to find patterns and then uh, uh, find meaning in those patterns. So my thought experiment in the believing brain is I open with this thought experiment. You're a hominid on the plains of Africa three and a half million years ago. Your name is Lucy. And you hear a rustle in the grass. Is it a dangerous predator or is it just the wind? Well, here we make two kinds of errors. If you assume <clears throat> that the rustle in the grass is a dangerous predator and it turns out it's just the wind, that's a false positive, a type one error. Uh, but no harm. You just become more vigilant and you move out of the way, but that doesn't really cost much. But if you make the other kind of error, if you assume that the rustle in the grass is just the wind and turns out it's a dangerous predator, you're lunch. Congratulations, you've just been given a Darwin Award for taking yourself out of the gene pool early. So I argue that we evolved the natural propensity to just assume that all rustles in the grass are dangerous predators and not the wind. Then... There's something different between the wind and a dangerous predator. The wind is an inanimate force. A dangerous predator is an intentional agent. So we often uh, infuse these patterns we find with intentional agency. Uh, spirits and ghosts and gods and demons and angels and aliens and conspiracy theories and all sorts of things of 
that, that there's hidden forces at work in our world. And I have a whole chapter in The Believing Brain on how we concoct sense presences uh, in the room with us. There's other uh, beings, not just schizophrenic-type people, but all of us can, can have this happen to us, especially if we're isolated alone in extreme environments and so on. So our brains are remarkable at, at concocting these beliefs and then finding evidence to support them. So... It sounds like you're saying our brains are, are in a sense, broken by, by doing certain things too well. We're really good at finding patterns. We're really good at, yes. at assigning what you call agenticity, that, that yeah. something is an intentional agent out in the world. Um, and there is survival value in that on the, the African plains. But uh, th- these days, there's less survival value. And, and maybe there's, you suggest that there's more in the, the scientific method. Yeah, so the problem is that our brains do not have a baloney detection module that help us tell the difference between true and false patterns. We tend to use intuition, emotion, whatever feels right, uh, anecdotes, and so on. And that's what gets us into trouble, because often those patterns are not real. So it, science is our, is our escape from what I call belief-dependent de- belief realism. That is, our, our notions of reality are based on our beliefs. The only way out of that trap is science. And science is so new that it's counterintuitive. In science, we take the opposite approach. Instead of just believing everything is real, science assumes the null hypothesis, that whatever your idea is, it's not true. So you think you have a cure for cancer or the common cold or you think you've got some new theory of the universe or whatever, that's nice, uh, but prove it. We assume it's not true because so many ideas turn out to be wrong, that science begins with the assumption that it's not true until you provide evidence to the contrary. There might be a Bigfoot. Uh, there might be aliens. Okay, whatever. Show me the body, right? I need to see physical evidence. You, maybe you have a new cure for uh, for AIDS or cancer or whatever, but you have to run clinical trials with control group and experimental group and blind and double blind conditions and so forth to avoid all these cognitive biases that affect everybody, including scientists. So it, it takes a lot more effort to, to do the science, and it's just easy, natural, immediate to form a belief. That's right. Yep. So science takes a little bit of extra work. So the problem we have here is, well, what do we do about all these weird beliefs people have, or beliefs in general? I mean, not just the weird stuff, but I mean, I claim that even politics is infused with this whole belief system. If you're conservative, you listen to conservative talk radio, you read the Wall Street Journal, you you sort through all those sources that, that filter all the negative evidence against your beliefs out for you, and you don't even have to deal with it. In science, you actually have to go in search of the counter-evidence, just just in case, because if you don't do it, somebody else will. Uh, some other scientist will make his career debunking your silly idea. <laughs> and that's why science is such a competitive enterprise. And I did like how, how the book begins with the science and the, the well, the, the nitty-gritty science of the neurology and builds up the psychology and then to this, this social level. Uh, it, it seems like in a way that the book is a manifesto saying that uh, science provides a superior way of understanding everything in the world. It is, absolutely. It's, it's not perfect. I'm not claiming it's some godlike entity that can do things. That, In fact, of course, it's flawed because it's conducted by people. But the system itself uh, is, has built-in self-correcting machinery to help us get around those cognitive biases. So the confirmation bias, for example, is the mother of all cognitive biases, where we look for and find confirming evidence for what we already believe, and we ignore the disconfirming evidence. In science... There's a system set up that says you better search for the disconfirming evidence also, because if you don't, somebody else will. Well, Michael Shermer, it's been wonderful talking with you. Um, If people are interested in uh, hearing more from Michael Shermer and uh, 
to get a copy of your book. You're going to be at the Tattered Cover tonight in Denver. Is that right? Yep, that's right. At the Lodo, I guess it's called. That's right. Tattered Cover, 7.30 tonight. Yeah, we'll be doing a whole hour of uh, talking and questions and book signing afterwards. Excellent. And that's the Tattered Cover at 1628 16th Street in Denver at 7.30 p.m. tonight. For How on Earth, I'm Ted Burnham. And thanks to Ted Burnham for that report. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Susan Moran was producer for this show. Executive producer and engineer was Joel Parker. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music from Baba Mall and Monsieur Sec and Beats Antique. Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the button to subscribe to our podcast. And if you are a musician, don't forget about our ongoing contest for a new theme song. The deadline to submit entries is July 12th. Check out the contest rules at howonearthradio.org slash contest. Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.